sleep, motherfucker. Don't go to sleep. And do me a favor. Don't disturb my friend. He's dead tired. Well, what the hell are you saying, Doss? You've lost half your body sleeping. I, I sleep pretty hard. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories. Hey, it's Brian. And hey, it's Murdoch. Welcome to Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories, everybody. Find us on Twitter. You can hit up Murdoch at Hey, it's Murdoch. Like fantasy football dad did or uh tr war 25 as he's known in the twitterverse uh hey guys love the podcast been listening since the start and i was wondering if you could do an episode on the axel kurt cobain feud i'm so excited oh my god this is really what we're doing okay uh, i was like do i need to, i was when, when this happened i was like i wonder if i just need to write everything down that i know about it and then go to see if it's true and then talk to you and then now here we are and if, we are already feels, doing this yeah it feels like this is one of those things that you already probably have a whole section of your brain dedicated to and it feels like good timing because we just spent a couple episodes in the thick of the 90s right we were talking about oasis we were talking about dave matthews band and we had just spent some serious time in the 80s talking about Judas Priest and George Thorogood. And these two guys are basically like the figureheads of these two competing decades. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And it, it was interesting that for a metal band that Guns N' Roses was able to kind of transcend what these hair metal bands uh, were not able to do, like Warrant and uh, Cinderella and all those other bands that yeah, it's a different this, level, a different level of success, a different level of fame, a different a different level of respect for sure, right? Yeah. There's a there's a video on YouTube of Guns N' Roses playing at Wembley Arena and uh and Lenny Kravitz comes out and plays guitar with them. You oh, know, wow. and it's like the yeah. usual illusion, like I mean, I mean, good lord, think about like the the universe like colliding at that point. And also, man, I'm wondering, does Lenny like to party? Because those guys <laughs> certainly did. I can, oh, and if and if in any way we can we can work in Duff McKagan's exploding pancreas, I would like to do that. This conversation <laughs> has nothing to do with them. I will say that every time I do any research on Guns N' Roses, I'm like, we literally could have a pod. I say this a lot. We could have a pod only about Guns N' Roses. We could have an yeah, entire so. spinoff pod because everything they do is has been heavily written about, heavily researched, uh, and there's just a lot of insanity. Like we've we you know have had episodes in the past where they've come up, um, but you're right. There is a whole lot here, and one thing that I think is really interesting is that, and I don't know if it's this way in your brain. In my brain, I don't really think of Guns and Roses and Nirvana as contemporaries but they're they're totally contemporaries like this stuff happens at the same time yeah Um, and and it's pre-internet so the way you had to find out about it was you know you waited for mtv news to talk about it or you you bought nerdy either like metal or indie magazines about it right and and that's and that's how you had to do it but yeah so at the same time Guns N' Roses is like on the VMAs and you have Nirvana eventually once they break, they're on the VMAs. Well, and and to your point about the thing that Guns N' Roses gets to do that Warrant never gets to do, right? For an example or a comparison is on this episode of the VMAs, which we've already just, we're already there. Like we're going to talk about the 1992 VMAs, but the, at this show, Axel and Guns N' Roses are performing with Elton John. 
Now, I I don't know, but I don't think, and correct me if I'm wrong, because Elton John is really into doing duets. Even more recently, he's done a lot of duets. There was never a Janie Lane Elton John duet, right? (laughs) Someone tell me if there was. I'd like to hear it. Oh, my gosh. I, you know what I want to? Oh, I want to hear right now. I want to hear an Elton John album of nothing but Warrant covers. That's what I want to hear. I want to go where the down boys go. I want to just hear Elton. Maybe just an EP. Wait, let me let's let's roll it back a little what, bit. What songs? What album. songs are on the Elton John Warrant EP? A uh, cherry pie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For hell's sake, uh, Uncle Uncle Tom's Cabin. Um, Do we get see I it saw red? red? Okay, yeah, yeah. I see yeah. it. Yeah. So those three, and then Down Boys, and then I will take, I will be flexible with that fifth song. I feel like you've thought about this before. This doesn't feel like a brand new idea. With, El- with Elton John, <laughs> so it's so freaking ridiculous, uh, so, you know. But but also remember, there's the backstory. There's a backstory before the VMAs too, man. Okay, so we'll, we'll keep returning to how these two guys and these two bands really represent two different periods of music and attitudes and entertainment, right? But. Here's here's the timeline. So if anyone's like, wait, that can't be right, Brian. Guns N' Roses, the early form, coalesces in 85, record deal in 86 on Geffen, Appetite in stores in 87. It's in 87 that Nirvana officially coalesces, bleaches out in 89. So these careers are happening around the same time. Um, except Bleach except bleach, <laughs> bleach costs $600 to make. <laughs> that is true. Not, and did not do what... Um, they did not get to go open up for Aerosmith. <laughs> yeah, very true. And then go out and then go out and headline. No, I, I know. That. I know both of these guys, Axel and Kurt, had a huge influence on you. But if you had to pick one, which one is the bigger piece of your musical origin story? It's uh, well, uh, it, it's weird because it's so like in the middle of midpoint of my life. But it's definitely Kurt for sure. Okay, yeah, yeah, me too, me too. Um, now, I think some of that is age, right? Like Guns N' Roses, the main Guns N' Roses memory I have uh, is, and I feel like I've maybe told you this story before, Christian school, maybe like early high school, during biology class, this guy gets out a copy of Use Your Illusion. I want to say it's part two. And at some point, it must have become a distraction because I will never forget the look on that biology teacher's face, man. This is like the only stereotypical Hollywood movie style Christian school experience I had, but this guy loses his mind. Uh, <laughs> like Twisted Sister loses his yeah, mind? Yeah, yeah. That's sort of how I remember it. Maybe it wasn't that severe, but he starts yelling red in the face about the evils of Guns N' Roses. But the main, my main takeaway was that like he was really mad at Guns N' Roses, not at rock music in general. Like, like I remember sort of leaving the room being like, well, the devil might not have all the good music, but apparently he definitely has that. Whatever that is, the devil owns. <laughs> but but it, oh didn't, it didn't seem indicative of all rock music. It just seemed like this guy really felt strongly about GNR. Did you know GNR got to do some dates opening for the Stones? You know that? GNR got to do all sorts of strange stuff. It, yeah. Again, it's like... I don't know if there, I was going to say, there probably is a market. I do think there's a market for this. Maybe there is when I just, you know, our Patreon takes off where we start doing just a Guns N' Roses pod because there is so much stuff. And I found myself reading articles, and some of them are in the show notes, um, excerpts of books, all sorts. And there's so many books, right? A lot of weeks, you get into this and there's like one definitive text if you really want to know something about a band. There's like... There's a lot of books about Guns N' Roses. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they've written, you know, and Duff and Slash both wrote books about, they wrote bios. 
And I'm guessing Steven Adler might have to. I mean, I don't know. Well, um, for, from a story perspective, for our purposes today, to answer this question that we've been asked about this rivalry, I, I find it sort of hard to know where to start because we're talking about two massive stars who cast massive shadows, arguably as wide and long as any musicians in modern history. And so doing this is no small undertaking. So here's what I here's the form I came up with. A little comparison and contrast of these two people. First is pop cultural figureheads, right? So let's just go all the way back to the 60s. William Bruce Rose Jr., born February 6th, 1962. Kurt Donald Cobain, born February 20th, 1967. So they are shy of exactly five years apart in age, Axel being the elder. Axel, born in Lafayette, Indiana, rises to fame on the West Coast, Hollywood Sunset Strip. Kurt, born in Aberdeen, Washington, of course, and famously he will stay in and become associated with the Pacific Northwest. But one big commonality that these dudes have, miserable, miserable childhoods. Sure do. And I know, I remember reading about Axel's childhood in an interview in Rolling Stone, and it was ju- it was like Epitite uh, era for sure. Oh, yeah, yeah. So uh, that's in, that interview is in the show notes. So it's from 89, so it's a little after oh, Appetite. Okay. It's a, just, it's a crazy profile. I just remember there's a thing where he would go violent mood swing and he would take whatever, like a bottle of something and just throw it against something and break glass in the room. Like he would just lift, like, like he was cueing himself. And I thought, well, this just seems like really ridiculous until yeah. he started talking about what, like what his childhood was like and how it affected his mental health. And I was a young, impressionable person and had no clue that that was, that was lying underneath the, you know, that's all, that's always what's kind of lying underneath artists or things. Right, right. right. I was going to say, this is, it's so perfect that you said that. This is the sort of mold that rock star discontent is often assumed to be called from. Like, teenage mother, abusive father, abusive stepfather, kept in the dark about abusive stepfather not being his biological father, pushed into the Pentecostal church to an absurd degree, uh, partly by said abusive stepfather. So all sense of good and evil is totally skewed because of that, right? Uh, discovers his true parentage as a teenager when he's going over insurance paperwork. I mean, that's like something out of a movie. Um, also discovers his last name is Rose. Thinks that's pretty dope, so he takes that on. Then yep. embarks basically on a life of petty crime. He more or less, this is not really an exaggeration, more or less gets kicked out of Lafayette, Indiana. <laughs> like, they, they, he gets arrested 20 times as a teenager and uh, eventually hitchhikes to L.A. to meet up with Izzy and start a band. Before Axel was Axel Rose, did he still go by Bill Rose or Billy Rose? Or yeah. He, did, did he, well, so he didn't want to be known by the same name as his father, and so he would go by right. W. Rose. Got it. Uh, so Kurt, on the other hand, let's talk about him. Fairly standard childhood by comparison until about age nine uh, when his parents divorce, and then like Axel... There's an abusive step-parent. There's a lot of acting out. Neither parent can really control Kurt. So he actually goes as a teenager and lives with a friend named Jesse Reed. And Jesse's family, born-again Christians, which Kurt will try on for a while and then, like Axel, fully rebel against. This is the song Lithium, if you've heard that little tune. Uh, That's about this period in his life. In high school, he meets a dude named Roger in his art classes. 
Uh, Roger will later go on to be known as Buzz, Buzz Osborne. And Buzz yeah. Osborne will start a band that we talked about recently on the show called The Melvins. And Kurt will become closely associated with this sort of loose collective of musician friends. Eventually, he's hanging out at their practice space one day, and he meets another kid named Chris Novoselic. And He also becomes a roadie for the Melvins. Think yeah. about that craziness. It's wild. It's wild. One more biographical and personal exploration about these guys that we have to spend some time on for this story to make sense. And that's their attitudes, histories, and reputations when it comes to the ladies. <laughs> wow. All right. How, how cra- What a crazy uh, way that we're going to be able to illustrate what this rivalry is about in the first place. I mean, right? Okay, so... That's it. I mean, that's kind of it. That, it's, what, it. It's totally it. I, obviously, if you know anything about the story, you know much about Kurt and Nirvana. You know Courtney Love is involved, right? Uh, there's books, there's movies, there's docs, there's, I'm sure, podcasts uh, dedicated to the Kurt and Courtney relationship. I don't think we probably have a lot to add beyond the facts of that, of this particular story that we're embarking on. But... I, I got I got one thing to add. Okay, add something. Right. Here's, like, here's... I don't know you have any idea about this at all, but, like... Axel and leading ladies and Axel and like his relationship. Oh, sure. Can you name one? Uh, the, the one I can name is just from when he was dating this person at this time at this, like at this event. Oh yeah. Yeah. So Stephanie Seymour, who, who right. we will talk about. She's, she's in here. There's another one who is a famous offspring uh, who was also in some videos. And so th- their names oh, will come up, but there's... That's right. There's it's Aaron Everly. Aaron that's Everly. Right. So Aaron Everly and Stephanie Seymour. Those those two are his established in the spotlight relationships that you hear about. Both of them almost marry him, and I think they both back out. Uh, maybe Aaron does marry him, and then that ends quickly. There's a lot of abuse and that sort of stuff that comes up. But we'll touch on that in a moment, along with some other things about his attitudes towards women, because there's some stuff in that dude's past we gotta we got to talk about. But stick with Kurt for a moment. Okay, so there's a wider story beyond Kurt and Courtney about that we should at least glance at. Two other relationships previous to Courtney that are going to play into this story and into his music. Uh, Tracy Miranda... And Toby Vale. Now, Miranda will financially support him in the beginning and will be immortalized in a classic song called About a Girl. But then Kurt's going to meet someone in another part of the Pacific Northwest music scene, a scene that will come to be known as something Murdoch holds very dear to his heart, Riot Girl. And uh, that is music that if you if you're just like I've never heard that term before. That's feminism plus punk plus politics equals Riot Girl, and that of course, uh, who I'm referring to, uh, Toby Vale. She is in a band called Bikini Kill, and she accidentally names one of the most popular songs in the history of the American <laughs> songbook. Right. So I forgot about that. That's actually not in my notes. Tell that anecdote. Yeah. So. Um, so Kurt, Kurt has a girlfriend and Toby is like, I, I can't remember who wrote it on the wall, but someone literally wrote on the wall, Kurt smells like teen spirit. And that, and the, and the joke, it was like kind of letting him know, like, look, we know you're, who you're hanging out with. Cause you smell like you're using her deodorant. <laughs> um, and like that was the thing. Like, that's where the name of the song came from which is a totally weird 
odd thing to do. I mean, and the other thing is that when that song came out, I'm I'm guessing your first thing about when you heard it and you saw the name of it, I'm guessing you didn't think about deodorant because that's not the deodorant they make for us, right? Well, that's yeah. not in the in the I, men's so aisle too. And think about that. I think I knew it was deodorant. I'm wondering if maybe my sister wore it or if I had just heard of it because I, I think I made the association but I thought it was weird that it was about deodorant like that definitely crossed my mind I remember that at a young age now th- this is this whole thing about Toby is worth pointing out because she has a very different relationship with Kurt than he has with Tracy because Toby won't take his shit right as you just illustrated with this great anecdote about smells like teen spirit she she will not forsake herself to financially support him and she saw traditional relationship labels as counterintuitive and counterproductive for what she was into right oh yeah and and kurt really i mean i i don't know exactly when that became part of kurt's sort of personality of not really being you know like gender roles being fluid and things being very different and that's just sort of the way that I don't know if that's just sort of the way like he he had been when as he was he was adult or if if that's sort of the way he felt when he was a teenager and an adolescent. No, okay, so came through. This is this is a great side of this to bring up, right? Uh, so there is this other aspect of Cobain that that contrasts with Axel very directly and becomes part even a bigger part of the dichotomy, and, and that's the relationship to the gay community. And we don't need to go super deep here. But just know that there is always this speculation about his sexuality. And he'll openly say things like, if I wasn't with Courtney, I'd be bisexual. And Nirvana and Kurt will support LGBTQ rights long before they're ever called LGBTQ rights. They'll play benefits and stuff. There's even stuff I've read. Now, you asked, like, when did this start? I've read that in high school, he particularly liked to hang out with a, a openly gay kid because it kept him from being associated with the people he didn't want to be associated with. He was always very much open to that, talking about that. Now, that, of course, is very much in contrast with Axl Rose. One thing I wanted to say about Toby, there is uh, a lot of Toby in his early songwriting, in Kurt's early songwriting. One in particular, you know the song Aneurysm? Yeah. Uh, The line, love you so much it makes me sick, said to be a reference to a time that he vomited after meeting Toby because he was so infatuated with her. That's healthy behavior. So... Well, you know, I mean, <laughs> stuff happens. <too. laughs> Take all these elements. A guy open about questioning his sexuality who stresses out so badly about female affection that sometimes it makes him vomit uh, and put that up against the guy who wrote one in a million. <laughs> yeah, right? right? That's right. it. Like, what else do we got to say? About well, that? Listen, are we, and, and, you know, I was like, do we talk about the songwriting? Because there's a lot of stuff in all the songwriting that we could compare back and forth and stuff. I mean, I think we can look I mean, at the behavior. Do but, you want me to, do you want me to do some Axel lyrics off the top of my head? <sighs> the, the back off, back off, bitch down in the gutter, dying in the ditch. You better back off, back off, bitch face of an angel with the love of which like, um, Nirvana didn't have songs that talk about stuff like that at all, right? Like the juxtaposition is unbelievable. So the mindset on why these two guys could would not get along in any shape of fashion in any multiverse is obvious. Well, it's obvious to me and you, and it's obvious to Kurt. the The crux of this story is that it's never obvious to Axel. 
<laughs> Axel can't figure out why Kurt doesn't like him, which we're going to get to. But September 2021, Sky Documentaries, British film, our British company, released a film called Look Away. This is a documentary. I don't know if you've seen this. It looks directly at the music industry's attitudes to towards and the abuse of young girls. And Axel's in this, in this film a lot. He's mentioned a lot, along with Steven wow. Tyler and many others. Most famously, and this is one of the things it centers on, Axel beat statutory rape charges in 1985. I'm sure you know this story. Yeah, I, knew, I remember that. 15-year-old girl and her parents go after him in 85. If you want to hear this whole story, there's an excerpt from Mick Wall's book that's linked in the show notes. It is in-depth. It covers this incident and a lot of the sexually bad behavior that was happening at a tiny practice space slash crash pad that becomes infamous. They called the Hill House. And by the way, Mick Wall, whose name is mentioned in Guns N' Roses' song, Get in the Ring, where Axel just has a, a, just a spitting out of the names of all the peoples whose asses he wants to kick, because he has a, a <laughs> beef with them. <laughs> Mick Wall from Kerrang! is one of those people. Oh, man. Uh, and I'll tell you, I haven't read the whole book yet, but I want to, because the excerpt that I read was great. Um, okay, so know that this incident at the Hell House, this stat, these statutory rape charges, they don't stop the rise of GNR. It actually helps the rise of GNR. This becomes part of the lore. These are There are stories about his mistreatment of women throughout the years. Uh, another notable one that I've mentioned before, I think, on the show, maybe in a bonus episode, 1990, Rose is arrested for assault with a deadly weapon because he hits his female next-door neighbor with an empty wine bottle. I don't remember that, but man, that's something. Now, remember that we talked about how Kurt has these songs in his catalog that you know that were inspired by women. Like, oh, I'm so infatuated with this woman, I'm going to vomit. Oh, this girl has been taking care of me and working at a cafeteria so I can work on my art. I'm going to write a song called About a Girl. Axel... Hits his neighbor in the head with a wine bottle and writes a song called Right Next Door to Hell on Use Your Illusion 1. So the contrast, again, is very apparent. I had no idea that song was about his neighbor or that he assaulted her. And oh my gosh, I love that song. So now I feel absolutely (laughs) terrible. Well, you've already been reading or not even reading, reciting these lyrics that are way worse than that. So don't beat yourself up too much. Right Next Door to Hell has some not... Not nice lyrics. Let's just say that and we are we aren't even talking about what you've already mentioned, which are his two most high profile dysfunctional relationships: the one with Aaron Everly, and the other with Stephanie Seymour. Uh, and, yeah. and one more point of contrast between the two gentlemen we're discussing when it comes to LGBTQ rights. You've also already mentioned this. Axel writes one in a million, which includes not only a racial slur but a use of the other f word in a line that says that those people quote spread some effing disease. Right, right. A couple of very different worldviews. That's what we're dealing with here. The show is brought to you in part today by Our Brains Hurt. If there is one thing that Murdoch and I love, it's punk rock. You've heard us talk about it a lot recently on the show. And if you need a little more punk rock in your life, if you need another podcast to add to your listening list, uh, check out Our Brains Hurt. Ron and Matt, both dudes from the Washington, D.C. area. They started this podcast during the COVID shutdowns because they wanted to give local punk bands an outlet to continue to put things out. So they've been at it now for a couple of years, and they have had some badass guests. How about 
uh, Ben Weasel, Joe Queer, Richie Ramone, Guar's Sleazy P. Martini. <laughs> and that's not even to mention all the other badasses from the local scene, etc. Our Brains Hurt is your very own punk rock audio green room. Each week, Ron and Matt sitting down with a new guest, chatting about shows, talking about tours, discovering records, whatever else comes up. And you can find it anywhere that you get your favorite podcasts. Or you can head over to their website. That's Our Brains Hurt. O-U-R Brains Hurt dot com. Most sources agree that when Nirvana starts making waves in the music scene, they've got a fan in Axl Rose. He's he's into it. And he, yes. there's this photo where he's like in the hospital or something. Have you seen this photo? And there's a Nirvana hat sitting next to him. No, I didn't know that. I know he was a fan because I knew that happened. Nir- okay, so Nirvana's old manager claims that Axl Rose showed up to a Nirvana show shortly after Nevermind came out and wanted to meet Cobain in his dressing room. And Kurt sneaked out of the venue. Oh, I see. And you know that you know that happened with Eddie Van Halen too. Apparently, so Eddie Van Halen wanted to meet Cobain. Yeah, and, really? and Eddie wasn't in great shape, mm-hmm. and it completely it completely freaked him out. So, and I read that in a a bio, like a Kurt bio. Um, I can't wow. remember which one it was, but it to- But I thought about it. I was like, how how fucked up would it be? <laughs> If like your guitar hero shows up and he's just hammered, well, and, and play. Then, w- won't you play with me? Can I play with my band? It's like you're what right. the hell. And there's this saying of like never meet your heroes, right? And I have met a couple of people who I really, really admire, and it was underwhelming when I met them. And I can't imagine what it would be like to have them fawning over you, right? And we know that Kurt was always uncomfortable with fame. So this sort of situation with him, I think, is even is multiplied by a factor because, yeah, he w- he was never good with it. And they came back from Europe at the end of '91. The Nirvana guys did a tour of Europe playing theaters, like small, not really big places. Um, they played one show where like the Pumpkins ended up getting like the outdoor stage, <laughs> and they were super pissed off that they had to play inside. Um, and they came back to America and smells like teen spirit had been on MTV for like six weeks. And, and the, like Kim Gordon and, and some other people had to tell them, they were like, Hey man, you're, <laughs> you guys are on the radio and they didn't know because there was no internet. No one's called, like no one had given, there was no like, you know, sending like Morse code to say, by the way, number one hit in America. Like, I right. guess they'd had no idea that they were, breaking it right um, and then and, and it'd be weird in the midst of all this kurt gets a phone call that axel rose from this band he despises ideologically wants him to play his birthday party and oh my gosh oh my gosh oh my gosh! this, this seems the th- th- yeah this is pretty accepted like i read this everywhere that i read anything about this story and so they say no and during all of this, Kurt is is quiet in the public sphere about his opinion of GNR. It's apparent, I think, if you're close to him, he's probably outspoken about it. And I think with historical perspective, we see exactly what's going on here, that he sees the misogyny, he sees the brutality, he doesn't want to have anything to do with that. But he doesn't make it explicit in the press until a 1991 interview with Seconds Magazine 
where he does say, we're not your typical Guns N' Roses type of band that has nothing to say, end quote. <laughs> There's a press conference near that time where he goes a step further and he says, quote, I think Guns N' Roses are promoting the wrong values, things like sexism. Uh, he says, what are they rebelling against? Rebellion is standing up to people like Guns N' Roses. <laughs> I didn't know idea. Now, I mean, he was so brutal. Shots have been fired, but there is something else that happens that really pushes this rivalry to the next gear. You mean that they didn't want to play the birthday party? There's more. There's there's more than just a birthday party. So, Guns N' Roses, while all this is going on, is in conversation with another band about making some very notable touring plans and so this is the part of the show murdoch where i'm just gonna like go get a drink and let you do i don't know what do you want to do 15 20 minutes on that time that metallica and gnr toured together you you want to just do a side episode here about this let's go no it, it, it's not even it, it's not even worth even i feel like about. this was a big deal to you when it happened was this a big deal it was a big deal, but like I didn't get I didn't get a show. Like wherever I lit like wherever I was whenever that happened, whenever that year was, like I didn't have anything in the market or ninety two. Were you in New York? Where were you in ninety two? If I was depending on what time of year it was, I might have still been in high school. Okay. So I didn't get a show. Um yeah, so it, it was absolutely crazy because at the time it was the idea that they were the two biggest bands and, you know, biggest rock bands, biggest metal bands there were. Like Guns N' Roses did some shows with the Rolling Stones and like really like who really cares? Like even in their last show they did, Axel told everyone in the audience it was the last Guns N' Roses show because too wow. many people are dancing with Mr. Brownstone. Like he said <laughs> that and they still go and do a dual headlining tour with Metallica. And there are so many things to talk about with that tour that happened with that tour. Oh, that tour is, just, that, again, that's an episode of its own, if not a series it's, of its own. There's so many things that go sideways on this tour. Yeah, that that is its own episode. Just the first thing and the easiest thing to get out of the way is they asked Nirvana to be the opening, uh, to, to be on the, the tour, and they said no. So this is where it really gets public and nasty. Well, it doesn't get public and nasty until the MTV Movie Awards or Music Awards. But this is where all of this tension starts to really build because, uh, yeah, you're exactly right. They are looking for who is going to be the perfect opener for this, and they decide they want Nirvana. And Kirk Hammett knows Dave, Christ, and Kurt. And so he says he'll call. This is a quote from him. I had to make the phone call to Kirk Cobain to talk to him about the possibility of joining our tour. And he just went on and on about how he didn't like what Guns N' Roses stood for. <laughs> he adds, I said to him, just go out there, represent Nirvana, play the show, and then that's it. And I pleaded with him, but he just wasn't having it. Yeah, he didn't want to do the gig, man. And and what's interesting is that if you had taken that band off of that tour, would Kurt have done that tour with Metallica? And I say the answer is yes. 
That's wild. That would have been fucking amazing. They were friends and they knew each other and would have understood the dynamics of that tour and what that tour would have been like. Like that would have crossed over crazy audiences and been like, I'm getting chill bumps thinking about it and talking about this stupid <laughs> idea that never existed <laughs> and it's never going to exist because the dead guy. Right. Uh, so it's never going to happen. So, but yeah, so it got all thrown out because kind of because of Axel. Now that quote in this idea that Kirk called them and they said, no, I, I read all over the place, but then near the end of my research, I ran across this piece that ran in revolver a year ago, which was a, a, just an interview with Kirk Hammett again. And they bring this up again and he gives a little more detail uh, in this article. And he says, uh, this is all Q and a with him. Uh, I talked to him two or three times about this. The first wow. time he gave me his reasons, all of which I just told you, which are what we talked about, like the, the misogyny that I don't want to be associated with that. But he said he'd think about it. I remember calling him a few days later, Courtney answered and it was weird because she went to go get Kurt and I could hear her jabbering in the background. And then Kurt comes on and he's like, Oh, I really don't want to do it. It wouldn't feel right. I wouldn't feel comfortable. And I'm like, okay, I get it. And then I called him one more time just to double check to make sure he didn't have a change of mind. And then Fast forward to the MTV Music Awards. Wow. And that's that's from the Kirk interview from 2021. I, I think we've heard enough about Axel in this episode to understand that he might not take outright rejection from somebody very well. Yeah. When word gets back to him that Nirvana has turned him down not once, but now twice, and really, if you believe that story about Kirk ducking out of the dressing room three times, they, they still haven't met in person, right? So they don't meet until the Music Awards. Yeah, beforehand when they're all hanging out with their buses and everything right. else. That's that's the first time they meet in person. So all of this is just happening probably between management companies and, you know, between, I guess, Kirk is calling and whatever. But, like, Axel, Kurt, never been in the same room or, or close together. So how does Axel handle something like this if he's got grievances to air? And the answer to that is he does where he, he handles them where he handles everything, which is on stage. In this case in Orlando, Florida. And so right now, alternative, only thing that means to me is someone like Kurt Cobain in Nirvana, who basically is a fucking junkie with a junkie wife. And if the baby's born deformed, I think they both ought to go to prison. <laughs> he really said that. That is really his voice. That's really real. He really said all those things. I will say that when I found the actual audio for this, I was like, is that really what his speaking voice sounds like? Because, you know, I'm just, I have not dug into lots of live performances. I'm sure you have. And so, say, have you not heard his singing voice? Because that's a whole other thing we could talk about. Right. Let's pass on that. <laughs> so, to fully understand what Axel is referring to here, there is another piece of pop culture that we have to enter into the permanent record for the sake of this episode. And that is the 1992 Vanity Fair interview with Courtney Love. Now, if you've never read this, the beauty of the internet, we keep saying the internet didn't exist. The internet does exist now. And Vanity Fair has put all of their archives uh, to a certain degree online. So you can go read this actual article just days before this Orlando concert, September 1st, 1992, roughly Vanity Fair publishes a piece by Lynn Hirschberg who goes on to be a very big deal in music journalism, entitled Strange Love, the story of Kirk Cobain and Courtney Love. And it runs with this 
tasteful photo of a mostly naked, substantially pregnant Courtney. And from the opening paragraph, the article is not what I would call flattering. Now, we know this, right? We know that the media has never portrayed Courtney in a light that is flattering at all. And probably probably mostly deserved. Um, but the part that will garner the most attention in this article is a little past the halfway mark after we've made it into the Cobain love home with the reporter and we've heard what it looks like and how they met and courted and married. And, and here's the snippet that will turn people sideways. I'm reading from the article. All this would be perfect except for the drugs. 20 different sources throughout the record industry maintain that the Cobains have been heavily into heroin. Earlier this year, Kurt told Rolling Stone that he was not taking heroin, but Courtney presents another extremely disturbing picture. And she says this in the article. We went on a binge, she says, referring to a period last January when Nirvana was in New York to appear on SNL. We did a lot of drugs. We got pills, and then we went down to Alphabet City, and Kurt wore a hat, and I wore a hat, and we copped some dope. And then we got high, and we went to SNL, and after that, I did heroin for a couple of months. It was horrible, recalls a business associate who was traveling with him at the time. Courtney was pregnant, and she was shooting up. Kurt was throwing up on people in the cab, and they were both out of it. After the New York binge, it was suggested to Courtney that she should have an abortion. She refused and reportedly had a battery of tests that indicated that the fetus was fine. She wanted to get off the drugs, says Boyle. I brought her herbs to eat. Uh, ease the kick so she wouldn't freak out so badly. I was bringing stuff over to her house every day because it's a whacked out thing to do to a kid. According to several sources, Courtney and Kurt went to separate detox hospitals in March. After a few days, she left and went and got him, says one insider, and they never went back. Whether or not they are using now is not clear. It's a sick scene in that apartment, says a close friend. And that is why Axel, in front of a live audience in Orlando, says if the baby is born deformed, I think they both ought to go to prison. Yeah, and it's a real drag that, well, look, it isn't, listen, man. this is the, from a PR standpoint, uh, I didn't, I read that Vanity Fair issue when it came out, and I was pretty shocked about about it, you know, uh, period. I mean, she, she'll say she's misquoted, misrepresented, except, you know, things were taken out of context, but it seems pretty straightforward and five days later after bro runs his mouth on stage gnr and nirvana are both booked to play at what we have been building up to for over a half an hour the mtv video music awards rock and roll bedtime stories is brought to you by athletic greens i love talking about rock and roll history not as fond about talking about my immune system and my gut health but if you get in a situation where you are having problems with those things, it becomes very, very important. So let's get you in a place where you're not having problems with those things. I say that because Athletic Greens was created by a guy who experienced a ton of gut health issues and ended up on this complicated supplement routine that cost him 100 bucks a day. And he said, there's got to be a better way to do this. And that's when he came up with this. It costs you less than $3 a day. It's lifestyle friendly. doesn't matter if you eat keto, paleo, vegan, dairy-free, gluten-free like half of my house. Any of that is fine. This will still work for you and it's going to do things to help your nervous system, your gut health, your immune system, your energy, your recovery, your focus, all that stuff. Find out. It's simple. All you have to do is head over to athleticgreens.com slash emerging and take ownership over your health and pick up a little 
daily nutritional insurance. They're going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do, athleticgreens.com slash emerging. Now, back to the show. Let's get ready to infringe on copyright infringement and not say what that guy says. Now, a a timeline note. Francis Bean (laughs) is actually born at the time of this quote. She's she's already in the world. August 18th, 1992, which (laughs) I'm doing this and I do the math and I'm like, Francis is 30? (laughs) Good God. Uh, I still think of her as like a 12-year-old. Okay, so uh, she's born August 18th. Vanity Fair hits September 1st. Axel runs his mouth roughly September 4th. Some of this is my estimation. And then September 9th is the day of the MTV Video Music Awards. Yeah. There are a lot of interviews and snippets with a lot of different people about this skirmish that happens at the MTV Video Music Awards because a lot of people were around to see it. But because of the giant personalities involved, the whole thing gets turned up. And it still gets talked about. It resurfaces every time anybody who was in the vicinity releases a memoir. <laughs> like the, one of those yeah. recent times that Nirvana's manager, Danny Goldberg, released a memoir like in 2019. So there was like a whole round of interviews where he just basically talked about this thing again. Yeah. And and if you, you know, there's people from MTV talk about it. Oh, like, oh, yeah. And we're going to. They did. Yeah, they didn't know. And then it was like, oh. Oh, so there's an oral history in this in the notes. I think Louder Sound or somebody did it. It's great, and there is like you, know, you to your point, like Tabitha Soren just just like inserted for a minute, right? Uh, Kurt Loader just like is like this was an important moment. Like you know, they're all just like sort of dropped in there because this is an MTV production. Um, mm-hmm. and then yeah. and then there is one person in particular who becomes a big part of this story. Her name's Amy Finnerty. And she will go on to become sort of a big deal on MTV. At the time, she's 20 years old. And the story is that she had been championing Smells Like Teen Spirit around the office. Yeah. And she she got him to add, she got him to play the video. Dude. She got him to play it. And so because of that, she becomes sort of an unofficial part of the, the Nirvana camp. And she hangs out with Kurt and Courtney a lot. And so she's she's got a lot to say about this situation and adds a lot of color to it in a way that nobody else does. Cause she's around and she's in, she's very much involved in their personal lives. So we'll, we'll get to those parts of the story, but it's really good. Um, she's on the bus, dude. That's why right, like, right. She's on the bus with everybody. Now, speaking of the bus in trailers, the story goes that there's a back lot area full of trailers, uh, behind the venue or sort of, cause it's like in a stadium or something. So there's like athletic field and they put all these trailers and all the trailers are really close together. And all the bands come in a day early. They have these hangout spots and these trailers. And then the open area around these trailers is where everybody congregates. So this is the setting for the first time that Kurt and Axel see each other in person. And got to be a smoking area somewhere. You right. Know what I mean? like, exactly. <laughs> uh, so they're, they're backstage. Axel comes walking by. Kurt and Courtney are out there with Francis. Now, Francis at the time is like two and a half weeks old. Kurt is holding her. Axel walks by five bodyguards and in her most sarcastic and a-hole manner, Courtney asks Axel, who she's never met in person before, if he would like to be the baby's godfather. Hey, Axel, you want to be your godfather? No, I actually think that's pretty funny. <laughs> I do too. And it's, you know, it's, it's weird. He didn't think it was funny because it is it's so, a, kind of a so funny joke. I have a theory about this. That's not in any of the research. 
So what is in the research is that Axel has five bodyguards and a cameraman. And the cameraman is not from MTV. The cameraman is on his dime, from what I understand. And Stephanie Seymour is also with them, too. And I saw a photograph that shows this is a real thing. There's like all these people and there's a camera guy. And Axel looks so super stoked. And Stephanie Seymour looks like she is ready to freak the freak out. She looks terrified. Oh. And I'm guess I'm like, where? What are they doing? It's like when that photograph was taken. Like, what the hell were they doing running around backstage? So nobody says in anything that I've read that Axel might be performing for the camera, but that seems like the logical assumption here, partly, right? So I, I think he's. I don't think Axel is ever really in the right mind. I mean, I think he has a lot of mental health issues, uh, and I think he's illustrated those throughout his life. I think he's admitted to a lot of them as as he's sort of grown and as culture has caught up with that conversation but uh i do think the fact that he is being filmed adds to the drama here because he immediately starts to lose his mind when she says this he gets sort of in their faces and he tells kurt quote you shut your bitch up or i'm taking you down to the pavement and and so the story goes that kurt's freaked out but kurt responds like somebody I, you know, who I would assume how Kurt would respond, which is he turns to Courtney and sort of in a voice to also be sarcastic and demeaning to Axel says, hey, shut up, bitch. And everybody thinks it's hilarious. Everybody thinks it's hilarious. This is a quote from Amy Finnerty, who is that MTV person who, uh, is hanging out with them. Kurt's tone was very sarcastic, so everybody laughed at Axel, basically, for making such a comment about a woman, especially because anybody who knew Kurt and Courtney knew that, A, Kurt wasn't that type of person, and B, nobody could ever keep Courtney in line, so what was he thinking? I'd say Kurt handled that situation perfectly. He knew exactly what he was doing by turning to Courtney and saying that. It really lessened the tension in the room, allowed the rest of us to laugh a little bit, and then Stephanie Seymour asked Courtney, are you a model? And Courtney, without missing a beat, looks at her and says, no, are you a brain surgeon? (laughs) Oh, man. I mean, I know Courtney has had her her moments that we should not approve of. But, man, that was good. That's that's hitting with all cylinders right there. That that still bangs that response. Yeah, that's so mean. Okay. <laughs> so this this could have been the end of it, but as you might have guessed, it was not. Um, let's return to that oral history and hear from the guys in the band, right? Kurt Cobain. Afterwards, we heard that Duff McKagan wanted to beat Chris up. Chris Novoselic. I was walking toward the stage and came across Duff McKagan. I think Duff was also under the influence. He must have heard something from Rose and had a terse word for me. Duff McKagan. I blew my lid when I perceived a slander toward my band from the Nirvana camp. In my drunken haze and drug-induced mania, I heard what I wanted to hear. I went after Chris Novoselic backstage. I was mad and insane then. My scope of dealing with any sort of conflict had narrowed down to barroom brawling. Duff's been in therapy. <laughs> hey, listen. Not only has Duff been in therapy, and, and I don't want to tell the whole thing in case we need to to just unload on a Guns N' Roses episode completely, but... When his transformative um, coming clean experience happened, he had a uh, he had a medical emergency, 
and could not walk or move. Oh, man. He got brought into a hospital, and they slammed him full of morphine, and nothing happened because it didn't work because he whatever else whatever he was doing it just sounded like the time he's just drinking lots of alcohol but he just said that he basically sat there for like three days and just full crazy pain and they were like you're gonna need to go to a rehab and he's like nope i'm good i'm done <laughs> i'm done i'm never doing i'm never drinking or doing and like that was it for him wow now and, but he but he knows but he knows like he's one of those guys that's he's He's like made amends, like he did the thing. Well, you like can tell in this oral history, you can tell that he is like the one guy who's like, I was, I was really bad. And there's like another quote where he's like his manager or so or mentor or somebody calls him the next day, and he's like, I was so ashamed, and I was in such a dark place. And like everybody else is just sort of like rehashing this hilarious rivalry, and he's like still trying to do work. But seriously, yeah. I screwed up, guys. Uh, so now this whole thing happens with Duff. And Nirvana has to go on stage. And so they go on stage, and Chris can't really hear his bass very well. And so in the middle of the song, he decides to throw his bass into the air for showmanship. And which, he, which he apparently used to do just to do. Yeah. But he did have the shitty bass camp, the cab that was playing through. Right. And then... And there's lights. There's like more production here than in a lot of places he's used to playing. And so he gets sort of blinded. He can't see it coming back at him, and it hits him. In the face, in the head, the and whole thing. He pretends to be knocked out. Uh, and and at the beginning, you left out this part. Oh, at oh. the beginning, were you going to talk about what they were playing? Yeah, we're going to talk about that in a minute because there's a whole bunch of stuff to that that doesn't really apply to the story that I totally yeah. want to talk about. So we'll talk about it, it in a second. So, yeah. uh, so he, Kurt and Dave start trashing their instruments. Uh, by the end of this, Grohl then runs to the microphone and starts yelling, Axel, where are you? <laughs> Axel! <laughs> now, the GNR performance that night, as I've already mentioned, is with Elton John. And so the way it's going to be set up is both Axel and Elton are going to play pianos. And they're sitting below the stage on a hydraulic lift. So when Nirvana gets off the stage, Kurt goes down and he sees the pianos and he walks over and he hawks his a loogie on the keys of Axel's piano, just and just spits on the keys. And he thinks it's hilarious. And he comes back up and he starts telling the guitar tech what he's done. And then the performance starts. And as the performance starts, he realizes the pianos come up and he realizes he screwed up and he accidentally spit on Elton's keyboard, not on Axel's. Yeah. Which the irony of what he just did uh, just shows like you're just going to be a butthole, man. Like sometimes just being a butthole for being the sake of a butthole ends up having the value of being a butthole. Like it actually, it actually like serves it. It defeats everyone. Unfortunately, in in the oral history, Amy, this MTV programmer we've talked about goes back to the Nirvana trailer because she needs to check on Francis and their nanny. And, Axel has Duff and Gilby. Picture this. Duff and Gilby are trying to tip over the trailer. Yeah, oh, that's right. Yeah, so that's why Duff really wanted to apologize because I don't know that he really knew. I don't know that he remembered that part yet. So, and Gilby Clark, too, like not even being an original member in, in on this stuff. But yeah, so they're, imagine how terrifying that is. 
Now, do you notice that Slash's name has not come up? Slash has, has said openly that he purposely backed away from all of this, that he was just not involved in it uh, because he thought it was stupid. Um, the next day, so what happens? You, you, This all happens. You're in Nirvana or you're in Guns N' Roses. You pass out because you've probably been drinking or doing drugs or whatever. You wake up the next day. You try to remember, like Duff, oh, my God, what did I do? What is your response as a band? Nirvana calls a press conference to try to explain what happened. GNR does not do this. Now, I've searched for the audio, been unable to locate the Nirvana press conference audio. I would love to hear it. Uh, yeah, I, I read this too after we got the question. I read there was a press conference the day after. Yeah, it, that's exciting. Um, but this is really where this all culminates, right? What what happens to these bands later? This sort of fizzles out. This becomes a big pop cultural moment, and and eventually, I mean, it's only a year and a half or so, uh, and, and Kurt is gone, and so you know this is this isn't something that really continues you can read if you look up well you know how does axel react to kurt's death there's a couple of clickbaity articles where people say that you know people who have who were part of axel's camp say that they had to console him for a long time after kurt's death and then he was very torn up about it a lot of the guys the other guys in guns and roses have sort of apologized and made friends with dave grohl because that's a good career move uh, <laughs> at this point right um yeah. and the and those those guys were friends with chris cornell do you know that? Like Axel and Duff were at least at least those two guys I knew were really like they were really shook up when he passed away. And just oh. I, mean, I don't know if they had just become more friends with guys in, in in Seattle. I mean, Duff Duff's actually from the the Northwest. Right. So there's a connection there. Um so but I had read that a long time ago that Ax, Axel got really upset when Kurt Kurt had died. Um I mean it could be, you know, all sorts of you know reasons right yeah it's it's crazy i would love to hear him talk about it now yeah i mean i I know you pay more attention to the daily doings of axel rose in 2022 than i ever will Uh, what what is his state of mind these days i mean i know he's gone through these phases where he got into homeopathic medicine and then he tried to get into to really being uh, like healthy and uh, and you know all these sorts of kind of ebbs and flows and the music has never recovered uh where is he nowadays I mean, they're they're playing they're playing huge ass stadiums and places, man. So they're they're still doing it. His voice sounds really bad, um, and that's you know that's that's what that is. But he also after he went out and sang and did the ACDC job for part of a year. Oh yeah, he did that. They asked him to come out, and he was fantastic. And he had Dave Grohl's, by the way. He uh, at some point he was remember that he had Dave Grohl's throne that Dave Grohl had after he fell off right, the stage and broke his right. leg. So Axel got that when they that they did the reunion or whatever. But but yeah. So if going back to that ACDC gig, which that was like his favorite band in the world, and he got to go out and be the singer in his favorite band in the world. And the one thing about his state of mind, I do know that I can say for sure, Brian, is that he shows up on time. And I Finally. think that's more than what most people would just generally expect yeah. from him. Yeah. I read that he's getting some stuff with his vocals done or something. Cause he just, it, I don't even know like where his vocals really are at this point. The rest of the band seems like they spin like a top pretty well and yeah. do 
pretty solid. They just, I mean, they're playing big shows and they're playing the same gigs every night. So, um, but yeah, so I, I, I said, that's why I want to hear what he would have to say now. He's done some political rants and stuff on Twitter where he right. just goes berserk, like real quick. It's just a big, like a, a bunch of lightning strikes and he's gone. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm, I'd love to hear what he would say about Kurt Cobain. So we'll end that talk there, but there are a couple of side notes that are worth mentioning. One of them you alluded to, which is let's just talk about Nirvana's performance at the MTV video music awards in 1992, separate from the rest of this craziness. Uh, so there is some of this in the oral history stuff that I read that when they show up for the rehearsal the day before they come out on stage and play rape me. Yes. And, and MTV freaks MTV loses their minds and they come up with a contingency plan as to what will happen. This is coming from Amy. What will happen if they go rogue and try to play rape me on live television? And so they sit down with them and they have this conversation. They want them to play smells like teen spirit. They say, no, we're going to play lithium. And so they go, okay, cool. Compromise. You play lithium, but they have this plan of here's what we do. Here are the steps we take. If rape me starts. And so Nirvana, and it gets lost in this story because of all the other dumb stuff that's happening. But Nirvana goes on stage and starts rape me. Yeah, they definitely do. And the the MTV programmers, Amy says she's standing back there with her boss, and they, pay, well, you know, look at each other with panic, and then say, "Wait a second, you know, wait, just wait," and that's when they turn and they turn it into lithium. But that's why if you know your Nirvana and you watch this clip and you're like, "Wait, they're doing rape me at the beginning of this," there's a lot happening in people's brains <laughs> for the short duration of that intro. <laughs> yeah. And, and, um, when the chorus kicks in the first time, if you can't believe this is my photographic memory, man, um, there's this crane shot that's well above the band looking into the crowd and you're watching the crowd as they're playing lithium on TV. And that, you didn't get that shot very much. I mean, this guy wasn't around like as a star for very long yeah. and you see the electricity. Yeah. Like that's all. Like that's a like, great point. Yeah. That's a great point. One more thing about, uh, this story. So if Nirvana doesn't go on the Metallica and guns and roses tour as the opening act, who does? Oh, it's do me to just answer that. Yeah. Or just, yeah, it's, it's faith no more. So, did you know the Faith No More also? This is the lore. Faith No More also gets fed up with Guns N' Roses while they're on this tour. And there's there's a supposed moment where Mike Patton, now he just last year did an interview where he claims this is true. That he, at some point during the tour, peed on the Guns N' Roses teleprompter in retaliation for the way his band was treated specifically by GNR. And in that tour, Brian, so you think about where we are in age and where I was and like I was like a senior in high school. That was when I first heard that Axel had had teleprompters. And I remember I saw Frank Sinatra and Frank Sinatra had the screens on the TV and he didn't even look at the damn screens the entire time. Uh, 
probably just confused him. Um, but I remember hearing that Axel had them. And that for me is in a rock and roll sort of like, you know, that brought me down, brought him down a lot in my head thinking, why is this guy with five years of like big, serious road? Like, why does he need the screens to remember the lyrics? Like, really? Yeah. I mean, yeah. you're doing 90, 90 minutes. You can't remember the words to those 10, 11 songs. Um, so I, I never heard that Mike Patton did that. And I love <laughs> Mike Patton. Oh, man. All right. If you've got something you want to have us discuss, uh, let us know. We are the story guys at gmail.com. And, and hit us with your Twitter again, uh, Murdoch. Hey, it's Murdoch. At Hey, it's Murdoch. That's O-C-K, not O-C-H. And uh, wow, good grief. What should people keep doing until next time, Mark? Maybe don't try to put on mega tours with Metallica, Nirvana, and Guns N' Roses together because it may not work. But keep telling stories, everybody. Rock and Roll Bedtime Stories is a Story Guys production. The show is produced and edited by Brian Eichenberger. Get more stories, hear more podcasts, and book the guys for your conference or house party at wearethestoryguys.com. Copyright Boy Have We Got Stories Productions. All rights reserved.